0: You resolute rhinoceroses out there. Welcome to another episode of A Little Greener, a podcast all about conservation, nature, and sustainability. I am one of your hosts, Casey, and I'm joined by the wonderful Sarah. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.
1: Happy 2023, which does not feel like a real year.
0: Nah, totally fake for sure. But we made it, so that's cool. We did make it, yep. <laughs> how are you doing? How's your New Year's?
1: It's fine. You know, I I feel like I saw so many, like, jokes about how that time between Christmas and New Year is, like, not really a time and you never know what day it is or, you know, how it feels like it's been forever and also Christmas was yesterday and blah, blah, I've never really felt that before, I think, it, because I don't, like, have – any time off work and I don't have any kids that are off of school or anything Mm -hmm. like that. But I did still somehow really feel that this year. I feel like the end of last year, I just sort of had no idea what was happening or what day it was or when the holidays were. And I feel like that has continued over into the new year. And I just feel like I'm totally like my work week. I just felt all messed up this week. Like I thought that today is my "Quote unquote Friday," and I felt like it was all day yesterday. I just sort of don't know what's going on. (laughs) Confused is how I've started my new year.
0: You know what? I think that's an okay way to start (laughs) your new year for me, because at my job we start setting it for Christmas in August, and then we're in like full Mm -hmm. Christmas mode from like November into December. Uh, Like two days after Christmas, when we started doing our our big Christmas sale, my coworker was like, "Enough!" (laughs) Like. (laughs) Took down all of the Christmas stuff that was behind the register. And I mean... no not, not at the, this point because we have like we you live in christmas so yeah yeah for like you know your 40 something hours a week in yeah. in uh, aggressive christmas and she's like nope it's spring behind the counter and we're gonna buff the floors and we're gonna get ready for the new year and honestly it felt like that's about as close to like a refresh <laughs> well, <there you> go. <laughs> that could be achieved so so yeah i did not stay up till midnight i no. uh yep i am just not that part or normally normally we do if we are with my cousins but Mm -hmm. we had covid issues and stuff Mm -hmm. and so really covid has ruined the last three new years that we've had and so at this point i haven't stayed up past midnight for a couple years we don't have cable and watch the ball drop or anything no yeah i don't have
1: any interest in the the ball drop stuff anymore and I have to get up at four o'clock in the morning, so yep, not worth. There was there was no staying up till midnight, but I do I do enjoy the concept of New Year and the fresh start. Me too, and all of that. So that's good. We'll have to discuss that at you know some future episode. I almost asked put that as our question for today to talk about our environmental New Year's resolutions, but I did not. So we'll, we'll save that for an episode where we we talk more in depth about that my question for you this week casey feels kind of random but it, it actually is something that i'm just curious about for you we're going to talk today about something that made the news recently towards the, the tail end of 2022 and so i'm just curious for you like i sort of came across this by happenstance sort of sort of passively which is how i feel like I get my news all too often now so I'm curious for you how do you stay up to date or where do you learn about your environmental conservation news stories information how do you feel like you keep yourself up to date because you know I always feel like you have a lot of knowledge (laughs) about things and uh, I'm just curious like what your procedures are or what your favorite resources are (laughs) or how you do that.
0: So when I worked directly in the field, I every morning would specifically read environmental news and I was on mangabay.com, which is a really great environmental news source. You should check them out if you haven't before. It's really great. And then E360 Yale is another one. Mm -hmm. And like every day I was at work, I would start my morning by checking my email and then checking to see if there were any breaking stories on there because I was about to go talk to the public about the environment. And I like to stay up to date. Um, since then, because I don't have that routine and frankly, sometimes when you overload yourself with environmental news, you get real sad. So (laughs) I, I kind of broke that habit at this point. I would say that my news algorithm knows me well enough that it does try and get me my environmental stories, at least the big ones, Um, And then my social media is a lot of... I follow Manga Bay, Mm -hmm. and then I follow a couple other different environmental groups or people who I admire in the field. And then, frankly, a lot of my friends are also (laughs) in the field. And so I am able to get news stories through them as well. So I don't feel like I'm well-rounded and like actively in the know anymore, but I do feel like I... And probably more well-rounded than the average American, mm-hmm, sure.
1: And I suppose I probably am too. It sounds like maybe we're relatively similar right now in yeah. the way that we do it, because I that that is what I feel I sort of just rely on what pops up when I open my Google News feed or whatever. I think maybe I just search too many other things, like so. I have a lot of sports. Stories sure. <laughs> that will pop up on mine and a certain sect of entertainment news like Broadway <laughs> stories will, will pop up on my Google feed in addition to the environmental things. But I do definitely re- rely on that. Just my technological devices spying on me at this point and following organizations on social media. But then I'm sort of dependent on what those algorithms do choose to show me Mm -hmm. as well so I like the idea of maybe just sort of doing that same thing but also being a little more intentional and maybe making it part of my routine if not every day a couple of times a week at least to have some dedicated sites that I go to and actively seek out so maybe I'll have to incorporate that into my routine in the new year. But the particular news story that we're going to talk about today is one of those things that just popped up on my newsfeed, as I imagine it did for a lot of people. And we mentioned it last week. I hope your cousin, hello, Ben, I hope that you enjoy this uh, episode. We are going to be talking a little bit about nuclear fusion. And nuclear fusion made some headlines a couple of weeks ago regarding uh the the first time that we've gotten more energy out of a fusion reaction than we've put in i didn't really understand what that meant or why it's such a big deal so that's what we're going to be talking about this evening stick around for that discussion All right. Welcome, everybody, to yet another discussion that feels very intimidating to me as someone who was never particularly fond of physics or chemistry or that side of the sciences. Give me your biology and anatomy and all that fun stuff any day of the week. This is sort of like another language to me. But we are going to talk about nuclear fusion. I think of this as like a... Bonus episode to our energy series. So nobody is getting any power. We're not getting any electricity from nuclear fusion, except for very indirectly, Uh, nuclear fusion is what is going on in the sun all the time. So I guess sort of indirectly, we're getting all of our power from (laughs) nuclear
0: fusion all the time
1: at the same time. (laughs) So this, this isn't, we're not going to look at this exactly like we do the other things in our energy series. I can't go super in depth into things like how nuclear fusion as an energy source is going to impact the environment. We will talk a little bit about that, but the fact is we just don't know because it's not happening yet. So we're going to talk about where we're at and all of that and, and also talk a little bit about this news story that broke recently and what the big deal with that is. In order to do that and get into that and try to understand why we even care about nuclear fusion as a potential future source for electricity, I do want to go back to our episode that I poorly titled nuclear power. I should have titled (laughs) it specifically nuclear fission. So let's do a quick recap of nuclear fission. Fission is generating heat by splitting atoms. So we're splitting an atom into smaller pieces, smaller nuclei and other subatomic particles. basically, fission becomes a a chain reaction. It's an emission-free source of energy in that production of energy energy is released by splitting the nucleus into smaller pieces. That sort of makes sense in my brain. Like, I can understand splitting something up, releasing energy. So that's that's what fission is. Casey, do you remember what we talked about as far as some of the drawbacks of nuclear fission or what your thoughts were, some of the things that you weren't maybe feeling so great about with regards to fission?
0: Sure. So you've already sort of talked about the pro, which is that it's basically doesn't produce any carbon emissions during the process of um, creating energy. Mm-hmm. Again, to be super clear, nuclear fission is if you have a nuclear power plant near you right now, it uses fission. Right. Nobody's using fusion. It's all fission. Obviously, from a public perception standpoint nuclear disasters are always I think the first thing because when you think of nuclear you could think of nuclear power plant you could think of nuclear bomb and they don't Mm -hmm. feel super far apart (laughs) even though they are (laughs) really like my issues is storage of the nuclear waste because there is radioactive waste that remains and right now our sort of idea is keep it in a medium term storage facility. No one really wants responsibility for it long term. And I don't think humans have a great track record with things that we have no actual plan for. Right. Um. So that's definitely an issue for me. And then we did talk a little bit about the environmental impacts of uranium mining because you do have to have a particular fuel source. And while it seems like they have improved a lot of the methods for this, mining operations still have lots of impacts on the environment. So that's like the drawbacks environmental safety wise.
1: Yeah, I still have questions about uranium mining, even though that has changed over the years. It has a not great history as well, which is something to consider. We've had some nuclear disasters, some meltdowns or partial meltdowns at various nuclear power plants around the world. And while some people might make the argument that those actually could have been a lot worse, that doesn't change the fact that they were still nuclear disasters. And that's going to be a hard thing. That is a hard thing for me to sweep aside. Uh, So there is that potential for things to really go wrong in these reactors these like you said these are chain reactions so if something goes wrong things like literally what will happen is this reaction overheats and the react the things literally melt (laughs) like and then uh, things that we don't want to be escaping that reactor can escape that reactor so we don't want that to happen and there's that public perception of that to, to get over as well and then yeah you mentioned some not all, but some of the radioactive waste generated from these plants is going to be radioactive for thousands of years. And the United States has still no long-term storage facility. It just blows my mind that we we just don't have one. So that's big. We also mentioned cost of, of facilities and that sort of thing being a factor.
0: That's the practical reason why sure. we don't have more of them um they are actually more commonly built in the eastern hemisphere like they're an industry that keeps being built but they often in the u.s because we sort of don't have a a knowledge chain and we don't do it very often they end Mm -hmm. up costing lots and lots of money so while it might be um it takes a really long time for them to also to recoup all their costs as well so while it might be a really great idea for a carbon-less way of producing energy, whether the sun's out, whether the wind's blowing, the startup cost is pretty prohibitive to most places.
1: And it is something that, of course, they're trying to work on with new technologies as well. But the fact remains that there are some drawbacks or considerations to keep in mind with fission. So are there other alternatives here? Let's look at nuclear fusion as an energy source. This has some of the same pros as fission in terms of it being a process that will not generate carbon emissions during the actual production of energy. Uh, And we'll talk about how it might relate to to some of those uh, drawbacks of nuclear fission as we go along. What the heck is nuclear fusion? I'm going to say these things backwards so many times tonight. But as the name would imply, fusion is putting two things together so nuclear fusion is basically smashing two lightweight nuclei together to make one nucleus of a smaller total mass than the two originals put together does that make sense so you're you're smashing two things together And the product is actually smaller than the product of the two whole things were initially. Which sort of already just doesn't make sense in my brain. But basically, that's going to end up releasing some energy. If you think back to that lovely equation that we all learned many years ago, E equals mc squared... One of the things that that means basically is that mass can be converted into energy. And C is a really, really large number. So even small differences in that mass can lead to big differences in energy. So that's what we're doing. It's sort of the opposite process of fission. And it confuses me sometimes that both of those things (laughs) release energy, but they do. So that's what we're talking about with fusion. This only only works with smaller, lighter nuclei. So for heavier nuclei, it's iron 56. Uh, Anything smaller than that, You can do fusion reactions with anything larger. You're going to have to put more energy into that reaction than you would be able to get out. So that's not very helpful to us. Uh, How does this happen? You have to have really high temperatures and really close conditions for nuclear fusion to occur. So basically, you're having to overcome repelling forces of two positively charged nuclei. So we remember that, that those uh, things of the same charge are gonna push away from each other. We think about opposites attract. So those same positive forces are gonna try to repel each other. But once you get them, Close enough, if you overcome that repelling force, once you get them close enough, there are going to be stronger attracting forces basically that smash them together. So the sun has the advantage of being very large and having a, a strong gravitational pull that basically allows this to happen naturally. So hydrogen is just fusing all over the place uh with the sun to make this happen on earth we have to heat plasma hotter than the sun think over a hundred million degrees celsius like up to around 150 million degrees celsius we have to heat this plasma to get these nuclei to Joined together, and we have to keep it all confined in a certain space to keep them close enough to get this reaction to occur. So the fact that people ever thought that this would be something that is possible uh, to do on Earth is amazing to me, uh, in and of itself. In addition to maybe not having some of those negative impacts that fission potentially has, this also has the potential to release more energy than fission does so it's possible that fusion can generate four times more energy per kilogram of fuel than fission does uh and nearly four million times more energy than burning coal or oil so so far we've got emission free and a potentially really efficient energy source as to positives that we're looking at with n- nuclear fusion. So let's kind of take a look at the the history and the timeline of what's been going on with thinking about fusion as an energy source. There are f- nuclear fusion projects going on in over 50 countries around the world. And this concept has been understood since the 1930s. And the first fusion reaction was produced in a lab in 19... 19-
0: 34 so this just reminds me that our chemistry and physics classes at least when i was in school are were so below the level (laughs) of what these scientists are operating at like i remember when we went from like this is the diagram of the atom and all the electrons mm-hmm. go in these little circles and then like some point in high school they're like jk they're a cloud and you're like whoa hold on right yeah we were talking about that before yeah, like, I, we I, i'm about like
1: this. it's it's too late like i can't mm-hmm. i it's
0: I, I can't do that i can no
1: longer comprehend that because you've showed me all of these little drawings of the electrons
0: and then at some point they were like hey remember that time we told you that like atoms are the smallest thing <laughs> That also wasn't really true. There's subatomic particles that are mm-hmm. like even smaller than neutrons and protons and electrons. Like, there's all sorts of things going on here. And just take our word for it, it's happening, but it's not really <laughs> going to impact. And so that's when I think we get into this fusion conversation that a lot of us don't really have the vocabulary for conceptualizing where it is, where like a lot of these other things is like the sun. I lighted on fire, the wind. (laughs) Casey. is this your way of telling me that I did a really poor job explaining? No, no, not at all. I actually think you did a really great job explaining. I just think that like, even when you do a good job explaining, the actual mechanism can be really hard to picture because energy, first of all, is not something that you can picture really easily. It's normally like some squiggly line on a graph being like, energy. (laughs) But just the... All the things going on with this are just so different yes. than our traditional ways of getting energy that I think for the general population, it feels science fiction, even though yeah, it's It not.
1: feels science fiction. And it's it, reading about all of this. And I had moments, like I had moments of clarity where, yeah. like, I, I feel like I get it and then I would lose it. But it, it's hard, even just because we're not doing it yet or different places are trying to do different things. There's not like I could look up with nuclear fission. I could find pictures and diagrams of what a nuclear reactor looks like and how it works and what all the parts are. You can't even really do that for nuclear fusion yet. So not only am I trying to just sort of mentally grasp this concept of the subatomic particles and trying to remember those things that I learned in physics and chemistry, like trying to do it without as nearly as much like concrete visual information uh, is quite the challenge. But it is really interesting. And as usual, we'll have Lots of links that you can check out in the show notes too if you want to try to to sort of grasp this concept a little yeah. bit more. So it's incredible to me that <laughs> at first, hard as it is for me to understand this now, that this is something that has been looked at since the 1930s. Uh, there was a big breakthrough in 1968 in the Soviet Union. Researchers, they were able to achieve temperature levels and plasma confinement time. Remember, those are two important things. We need this to be really hot and we need it to be closely contained uh, that had never been attained before. So they used a machine that it's described as a donut shaped magnetic confinement device. I do not know how to pronounce this word. Tokamak.
0: That's what it looks like to me. Yeah. T O
1: K A M A K. And this is probably the forefront design that it seems like scientists are still thinking would be used in. The production of commercially available energy for fusion reactions. So keep that word in mind, however you pronounce it. Uh, And then the Joint European Taurus or JET, J E T, in the UK, which has been in operation since 1983, achieved the world's first controlled release of fusion power in 1991. The Tor Supra Takamak? I'm going to pronounce it differently every time. Uh, In France, holds the record for the longest plasma duration time of any (laughs) tokamak, which is 6 minutes and 30 seconds. The Japanese JT60 achieved the highest value of fusion triple product, is what they call it, which is density, temperature, and confinement time of any device. And then our most recent big breakthrough came on December 5th, 2022, when a team at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory's National Ignition Facility, referred to as NIF, I learned that there's a lot of acronyms in nuclear fusion, Uh, they conducted the first controlled fusion experiment in history to produce more energy from fusion than what was put into the reaction. So they got a a positive amount of energy from the reaction. Previously, when we've gotten fusion to take place, it has required more energy input into the reaction than we were able to get out, which is obviously not helpful if we're trying to generate electricity. So I feel like, though, Casey, I don't know what your thought was... When you saw these headlines, and of course, we're practicing reading the actual articles and not just reading the headlines. But it's not quite what it might sound like initially if you just hear that and just read that headline that they got more out of the reaction than they put in. So... So if you dig a little deeper into what actually happened, so first of all, this uh, the National Ignition Facility. They it's not one of the Takamaks. it's a different type of setup. So they actually use laser-based inertial confinement, and what they did was they actually so they they it was two point zero five megajoules of energy delivered via laser pulses to this little fuel pellet that resulted in 3.15 megajoules of energy out. Great, cool, not a huge amount of energy difference, but still definitely positive. However, that's literally just if you're looking at the actual energy put in, like supplied to the, the fuel, if you will, to run those lasers, that delivered that energy to the fuel cell, it took about 322 megajoules. Oh. so It doesn't mean that they could have powered the lasers or powered the facility on the energy that they get out. So
0: that's maybe misconception number one. Okay. Well, okay. <laughs> I do want to say that I, I do think it actually is, I mean, if you look at the integer difference between 2.05 and 3.15 megajoules like that's not very big but it is like one and a half times yeah. the energy so like on a larger scale that might be exciting now I maybe you know this or maybe you don't but like the the lasers that <laughs> went into this fusion would they be able to do more fuel than that little experiment or is that literally like that's what those lasers are designed to do nax amount that pellet
1: i i don't fully know the answer to that okay. i do think that there is i mean they certainly they i would have to up the scale right Uh, of this and part of the reason i can't answer that fully is it's just literally not what any of these facilities are set up to do none of them are set up in the way that anybody thinks would be usable in terms of mass production of energy like we're not just going to hook any of these things up to the grid they are all sort of testing different aspects of fusion which is kind of cool really so they're trying to figure out what Uh, works best so this laser-based inertial confinement could be used potentially in the future to generate electricity but i don't think it is the leading like most people who are studying this don't feel like lasers are necessarily going to be the way okay i have read that much at least again i this is it's another thing like i just i don't fully understand so here's what one article from nature.com how they described it. They said that the, the NIF used its set of 192 lasers to deliver 2.05 uh, megajoules of energy onto a sized gold cylinder containing a frozen pellet of the hydrogen isotopes deuterium and tritium. The laser's pulse of energy caused the capsule to collapse reaching temperatures only seen in stars and thermonuclear weapons uh, and the hydrogen hydrogen isotopes fused into helium releasing additional energy and creating a cascade of fusion reactions that's how they describe it i have a very clear but possibly wildly inaccurate mental image of these just science fiction lasers all just trained on this little tiny thing. I have no idea what that setup actually looks like. Uh, but but that's that was the most sort of descriptive thing that I could find on what actually went down. So I have to say, go, oh, go ahead.
0: I was gonna say I'm glad that it's hydrogen from a selfish standpoint of understanding this because hydrogen has like the one Proton, mm-hmm. I think. And, and then when you put two of them together, then it's going to go up to helium, right?
1: Uh, yes. However, we are talking hydrogen isotopes here. So that's right. this deuterium and tritium, okay. which we'll talk about as well. Because So the, the sun is super cool and just can do it with <laughs> regular old hydrogen. But we cannot. Uh, we, we can't do that here. So we use... The, there are different, and man, you can find like lists of the different possible fuels that could be used in, in fusion. But the scientific fusion community seems to feel that this combination of deuterium, I probably said that like three different ways as well. I'm pretty sure it's deuterium uh, and tritium are the most efficient combination to make this happen. And there's a whole set of like requirements that these fuels need to have. We talked a little bit about the size, uh, but other things as well. But they they feel that this is going to give the highest energy output at the comparatively lowest temperatures. So that's why these two things, I think, seem to be the leading fuel sources right now. Deuterium is also apparently abundant and so easy, easy to get. Tritium, however, this isotope is very rare on Earth. <laughs> it is like only found in trace amounts naturally in the atmosphere. So it's not something that we can like collect. So, right now, commercially on Earth, they say there's only about 25 kilograms of tritium available. So, I'm like, why are we even talking about this uh, as a potential fuel source? But apparently, it is in some circumstances, uh, a byproduct of nuclear fission. Only certain reactors, I think in Canada actually, uh, are the ones that produce this from their nuclear reactors right now. So that's where some of this comes from. But the hope and the thought, and I think one of the things that is going to be tested in these nuclear fusion sites around the world, uh, is that we will be able to generate more tritium in fusion reactors. And again, because I don't really understand the design of these different types of setups for fusion, I don't fully understand how this works, but basically using a lithium blanket, and this tritium can be produced by, I think, some of these sub- subatomic particles reacting with the lithium blanket in these fusion setups. But I think that this is just theoretical right <laughs> Like, so I'm like not all sure these that it's fusion, actually put into
0: practice. All these fusion facilities around the world, like all 50 of them, were like, let's divvy up the existing tritium that we know about. I, it's You have to buy this. it. Guys, okay. All right. And
1: you, I guess you can do a lot with a small amount, as this we see like... from our pea-sized fuel cell. It's all confusing. It's like, <laughs> it is a whole new world.
0: Like unobtainium from but, Avatar yeah, or yep, something like that. Yep. We're like, meh. <laughs>
1: yep. But that's, that's what it is. There you go. So basically, you're taking these two different isotopes of hydrogen. You're smashing them together to create helium and your free neutrons and
0: releasing energy in the process. So then does the helium combine again? Or is this just because oh. there's so many atoms going on that it's pretty...
1: Once again, understand. this is another thing that I don't quite understand okay. because because I think it has to do with, like, we haven't sustained this for very long okay. yet. I, so I think that that's part of that it. I know, like, in the sun, like, yes, there's basically yes. just parts of the sun where there's just lots more helium now, I guess, than there used to be. Um, but the sun is, is very, 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 very large. So there's still plenty of of uh hydrogen going on up there too so okay let's talk we talked about a couple of the the benefits of fusion just from talking about how it works there but let's talk about a couple of the other potential benefits of fusion that address some of those drawbacks of fission so we talk about the long-term high-level nuclear waste storage issue that there are is high level waste produced from fission that is going to be radioactive for thousands of years we have a storage problem with that so tritium is radioactive there are radioactive waste products produced with fusion however the half life of tritium is only i think it's actually a little bit less than 12 and a half years so it negates the need for that long term storage. It is going to decay much, much faster than those high-level wastes from fission. And so it's safer in that regard. The other thing is, and again, this is a fuzzy in my brain, but we talk about fission being that chain reaction. It generates a lot of heat. It requires a coolant in the reactors. Um, if something is disrupting that cooling process, if a reactor gets shut down, Fission reactions don't stop immediately, and so if there's issues with that cooling, that's where we can get into some of those bigger disasters. Fusion, as we've kind of talked about, is difficult to maintain because you have to heat it to those extremely high temperatures and keep things contained in specific places. So if something disrupts the fusion process, it's done immediately. So there's no risk of a meltdown or anything like that. Everything is just going to stop immediately is basically the gist of it as far as I understand. So in terms of a nuclear fusion reactor meltdown, it is literally physically not possible is what it sounds like. So I like that one.
0: Yeah, that one's nice. I feel like as someone who lives near a nuclear power plant, Weirdly, I'm less worried about the nuclear disaster than you. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we talked about it last time. I'm like convinced that probably we're gonna do some fission to move forward towards our goals. Now, if fusion becomes a- an actual scalable deal, mm-hmm. then maybe that negates too much long-term investment in fission. But also you're talking about like such small experimental processes that that scalability just seems like my I was telling my dad that I had heard like we're like 30 to 40 years out from scalability my dad's like oh no I heard someone said more like 10 and I was like I I I have no idea
1: (laughs) I did I have no idea either I'm sorry to tell you that I even reading about this I'm not sure I did read some articles where some scientists were saying that yes they think maybe we're within two decades now uh potentially For me, reading about this, I that feels hugely optimistic. Like, I can't imagine uh, this being ready to go that quickly. But who knows, you know, now that this breakthrough has hit the news, what that will kind of spur on. So, with that, where are we going from here? So, these experiments are going to continue. NIF that just had this breakthrough, they're not even set up like their goal is not even research for energy production They're weapons research uh which is a potential i mean there is st- like we i think we mentioned in our in our other nuclear energy episode that i mean fusion is the process used in h-bombs like we didn't talk about that much but oh, yeah. there is there is still some of that concern that as we Uh, progress with nuclear fusion that there could be more weapons issues i don't know that's kind of a separate i'm compartmentalizing that for now uh, i think but uh so more experience are going to continue we'll see if this happening whether nif will continue down that route or if maybe funding will start to pivot more now towards this idea of of cleaner energy so we'll see how that goes but there are other sites uh currently running and a big one that will come up if you look up anything about nuclear fusion at this point is ITER uh My understanding is that this started as an acronym for the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor, but now they're just calling it, I don't know if they're saying I-T-E-R or if they're saying ITER, which apparently means the way uh, in Latin. So there you go, I-T-E-R. And this is a joint project between China, the European Union, uh, apparently still including the UK as well, uh, India, Japan, Korea, Russia, and the United States that has been in production we can work
0: together. <laughs> we
1: can uh it's been in production for several years already uh in terms of construction and it's not actually set to even turn on uh what they call first plasma uh until 2025 but we talked about how you know some of these sites are researching specific things so they have they have a website you can visit iter.org uh, and you can find a whole bunch of information they talk about uh, so this is what, another one of those tokamaks <laughs> so they talk a little bit more about what that is um they talk about the timeline and they talk about some of their goals for this particular Project. So they are uh, really going to be looking at. I mean, they have several things listed. Um, so they're looking at things with the plasma. They're also using this deuterium tritium plasma for fuel. And they're trying to look at getting this sustained internally, basically, by the fusion reactions supplying the heat for the reactions, I guess. They're looking at uh, the the tritium breeding that we mentioned. That's going to be one of the things that they are going to be looking at to see if they can figure out how to use those like blankets to produce more tritium. Is going to be one of the things. But they have several. They have like five specific. Areas, I guess that ITR is going to be looking at. So that's a big project that's going to be coming online in the next couple of years. And private investment now of nuclear fusion has reached up to about $5 billion being invested into research. And again, we'll see what the latest development, if that spurns more. So it's, I guess, possible that interest from this will sort of jumpstart and will start to pick up steam a little more. But even just going back to some of those earlier breakthroughs, it's like, oh, we did this first in the 30s and then 30 years later, we achieve another breakthrough. So I don't know. Uh, It'll be really interesting to see uh, what happens. Do you have thoughts or feelings about any of this, Casey? Were you you excited? Were you disappointed when you found out what it really meant? Or how are you? Do you feel like it is not worth the time and the investment? Like, should we be spending our time
0: on other more proven technologies at this point? I have two parts of me that feel slightly differently. So, like, regarding the actual technological breakthrough. I think that it's exciting and it's like the science nerd part of me. is like, <laughs> humans are cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we're trying to do something the sun does. How how amazing that we would be able to accomplish even a fraction of what that is. That I think that's super cool. I think that the implications long term for the use and scalability of this technology could be really, really amazing. The part of me that is a wet blanket is the one... Who has heard for too long that technology will save us? Mm -hmm. And that is my general concern is that people who are already reticent to adopt already existing alternatives to fossil fuels, for example, will continue to use things like these to have an excuse of why we don't need to adopt renewable energies right now because the next big solution is coming along the way. And I do think that, like, long term technology will allow us to mitigate lots of parts of climate change. I just think that it a lot of times we separate ourselves from that like in between time of all of the casualties on the in between of like mm-hmm. all the people who are being impacted by climate change now, all the species that will lose, all the ecosystems that are are going to be changed, we might end up coming to a future that's a big bet where our technology is allows allows us to put the planet more back in balance but in the meantime like why would we want to live in that world when things like solar and wind and other carbonless forms of technology exist are scalable are cheaper and can be implemented right now and yet we have such strong opposition from them that prevent them from being operable sure. that's that's my wet blanket frustration part of things like this and also things like I'm glad 5 billion dollars is going into science but also like how much funding does the environment need right now? How, right. C- like can are these same people who can give 5 billion dollars to nuclear do something <laughs> that can actually make a difference right now in people's lives or animals lives or, or the environment?
1: I hear you. And I, I think I went on a roller coaster with this man because <laughs> at first I was like, oh, this is so cool. And then it was like, blah, this is not what I thought it was. Uh, and then I, what really got me oddly was or I don't know if it's oddly, but was reading the actual like from the NIF itself specifically some of the people who worked on the team who made this happen. And then I sort of put myself in their shoes. They've been trying to do this for a long time. I don't want to get it wrong now, but I want to say that the facility opened in two thousand is it two thousand nine or two thousand twelve, I feel like, somewhere in that vicinity. Anyway, they they actually thought that this was going to happen a lot sooner than it did. So I just feel really proud, I guess, of the scientists that figured this out. And I do feel that there is value in learning and progressing in what it, is nuclear fusion going to be a super important development that we all come to land. I don't know, but I think there's value in just learning and growing and figuring out what we can do and and that sort of thing so i i just sort of put myself in their shoes for a minute and thought you know what okay yes we're not in my opinion anywhere close to using this as an energy source yet but dang that's pretty cool and good for them for how much time and you know thought and hard work went into this and then i am sort of of two minds i totally get it like we need to be better about utilizing the things that we have available to us today. But currently, as we sit here and talk about this, I'm really excited about nuclear fusion. Like, I hope, it, I hope it works. Like, I hope we can use this someday because I do think that there are pros, pros and cons to all energy types. I think there are some specific pros of nuclear energy that I really like as compared to some of the other types that we have available, but I just can't get over the safety cons. And that's both the mining and the reactor issues. And so in my mind right now, fusion is the coolest one in terms of all of the positives that it has and the amount of energy that it could produce uh, and negating some of those things that I don't like about fission. And so in my head, it's so fantastic. The problem is, is that it really is only in my in my head right now. So I don't know. I guess that was a long-winded way of, of just saying that I I think it's really cool and I know that we need to be investing in, in things right now, but I do think that there is also space to continue investing in these things to come and I'm excited about it.
0: It was fun to learn about. I think I want it to work. I just don't want us to bank on it working. Mm-hmm. I think that's where I'm at.
1: Totally agree. And I do feel like this is a little bit different than things where I read about like carbon capture is going to save us and like stuff like that. To me, this is different, but I can see how some people might treat it the same as, oh, fusion is coming, so who cares about any of this other stuff? To me, it's not like that and shouldn't be treated as such, I think. But I think it could be an, an important player, an important piece of the puzzle down the line and right we also need to keep moving forward with the things that we have right now
0: thanks sarah i learned a lot of things (laughs) I, i hope so i don't know
1: uh but uh yes we'll we'll have some links for you available in the notes and we will wrap things up in just a moment so stick around All right. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us this evening for our discussion on nuclear fusion. I hope you enjoyed it. A couple of quick challenges for you this evening, sort of going back to what we talked about at the beginning, thinking about our news sources, how we stay up to date on what's going on in the environment and conservation and sustainability. I will challenge you to come up with your own conservation news plan, whether that means... Finding a website that you want to visit a couple of times a week that aggregates stories for you, whether you want to set a news alert for yourself with certain keywords, uh, whether there is a, a particular organization or something like that that you want to start following to help keep you updated, I would just encourage you to come up with a plan for your new year of how you want to get a little more invested and make your news feed a little greener, I guess for 2023. So think about that. I will also encourage you to visit this website for the ITER. Again, lots of links in the show notes, but I think that one in particular just has a whole lot of information. It has some basics on what nuclear fusion is uh, in addition to the project itself. So uh, I think that might be a good source if you want just a little more clarity on some of the things that we've been talking about tonight. Casey, anything to add? Before we close it out,
0: only that I won- hope that you don't feel weird about how you pronounce Tokamak because apparently it is an acronym from Russia. So it's an not- acronym. It's an acronym. I yes, knew it was it- a
1: Russian thing. It's I- a
0: toroidal chamber with magnetic coils. So that's the- okay the it comes from a Russian acronym so <laughs>
1: I feel weird about how I pronounced a lot of things today. <laughs> but well uh, not that I'm, one because it I'm is not an gonna, acronym <laughs> I won't lose any sleep over it y'all can uh if anybody uh out there listening works in nuclear fusion if you're an engineer or a physicist or whoever and you want uh, to send some clarifying comments uh, our way, feel free to do so. Uh, you can find us all over the place. We're on Facebook, A Little Greener Podcast. We're on Instagram at A Little Greener Pod. We're on Twitter at A Greener Podcast. You can email us at Podcast at com for your pronunciation, information, nuclear fusion, clarifications, other ideas, questions, comments, things you want to hear about this year on the podcast just to say hi, whatever. We're always happy to hear from you.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, Sarah, for getting us through a toughie. You're welcome, Ben. (laughs) Hope (laughs) you enjoyed it. it. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk to you guys next week. Bye.